You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, a feature in the BMJ looks at a scheme which allows surgical trainees to go to India to obtain some necessary experience. We'll hear from a trainee who's done just that. So suddenly you've got a city that's got 10 times more people in one hospital. Mm. Seeing that many patients at Duncan completely changes exactly how you perceive a problem. But before that, a video on bmj.com looks at the problem of overtreatment in medicine. One of the interviewees, Sharon Brownlee, had so much to say on the topic that we thought we'd uh, give her some time in the podcast. So here's an edited excerpt from her interview. I first began to, to think about overtreatment about a decade ago when I did a series of stories. Um, one of them was on PSA testing, uh, another one was on mammography, Another one was on a treatment for breast cancer, a high-dose chemotherapy for advanced breast cancer. And I started to see that there were these instances where physicians were giving patients treatments and tests that either didn't have very good evidence for them or actively harmed the patient in the absence of evidence that there was going to be a potential for benefit. And I thought, there's something wrong here. This doesn't fit with what I think I know about how medicine works. Part of it is driven by worries about malpractice. Clearly, physicians worry all the time that if they don't give this test, the patient will turn around and sue them. Uh, And it's a very real worry, and it's a legitimate reason. Uh, It is is one of the drivers of overtreatment. Another reason is the unconscious nature of the delivery of care in different places. So one of the things that we've found in this country, um, and is true in other countries as well, is enormous variation in the amount of care that's delivered to very similar patients. This is work that was done by John Wenberg at Dartmouth and the Dartmouth Atlas um, Project. So we have this enormous variation in how much care is delivered to similar patients at different hospitals. And, um, and then another piece of it is that patients have increasingly begun to demand care that they probably don't need and that they probably wouldn't want if they really understood what the trade-offs are. The, the, the other reason is one that, um, that I tend not to talk about when I'm talking to physician audiences. Um, which is the fee-for-service payment model that dominates how most physicians are paid in this country and how hospitals are paid, really, um, incentivizes everybody to deliver more care. You get paid more to do more. You don't get paid more to do better. In this country, we have um, this kind of dual system. About half of care is paid for through government. So that's about half of it. The other half is paid either out of pocket by patients or through private insurance. And that's mostly purchased through employers. So we have this very, very diverse payment system. All of those payers are vulnerable to political pressure of some form or another. So if Medicare says, for example, we're not going to pay for, say, PET scanning for putative Alzheimer's, because the evidence isn't very good, because there's a very high false positive rate, and we're simply not going to pay for it. Um, When that happens, the people who own PET scanning machines and the people who own the the companies that create the reagents for PET scanning 
put pressure on Congress, and Congress then puts pressure on Medicare, and suddenly Medicare is paying for Alzheimer's scanning. And this is a true story. So there's the political side. On the private pay side, when insurers say, we're not going to pay for stuff that doesn't work, um, physicians tell their patients they're being denied care that they need, and the patients then turn to their employers and say, we think you're doing bad things. You're trying to ration care. So there are many, many examples of, of overtreatment, specific uh, tests or, or treatments that are, that are delivered uh, inappropriately. And probably the most notorious in this country, there are two that are really quite um, prevalent in this country. One of them is the use of stenting and angioplasty for stable coronary artery disease. We do a lot of stents and a lot of angioplasty, um, about a million a year for elective, uh, our elective procedures. And it's very clear that a very high number of those um, are not necessary. Now, the interventional cardiologist will dispute how many are inappropriate, but there's a difference between an inappropriate case and one where you didn't actually inform the patient about what the options were and you didn't fully inform the patient that medical management is equally as good as stenting in the relief of, of stable angina. So that's one example. The other example is back surgery. Back surgery is absolutely rampant in this country. There are pockets of um, back surgery in this country where the people living in particular areas have a very high rate of back surgery. And it's not because they have more back pain. It's because there is a one practice, for example, that's very aggressive. So the, the solution to that, I don't think, is to say the payer is simply going to not pay. I think that a better solution is to really engage patients in the decision around getting the surgery or not getting the surgery. The Affordable Care Act that passed in 2010, which is known as Obamacare, um, really addressed only one of the three problems that we have. It really focused on covering everybody. It did a little bit on the cost side, a little bit on the quality side. Um, it's, it's set in motion some very big changes in American medicine uh, 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 for the accountable care organizations, which is a whole other issue. But it was really mostly legislation about covering everybody. And that's only part of the problem. We don't have the data we need to know what works and what doesn't work and for which patients it works. And part of the reason we don't have the data that we need is we've effectively handed the clinical research agenda to the pharmaceutical and device industries. 80% of clinical research in this country is paid for by industry. So that means that industry gets to choose what gets researched and industry is only interested in research that involves its products. So we have a lot of drug data. A lot of it not very good, but we have a lot of drug data. We don't have surgical evidence. I mean, most surgical procedures have not been subjected to a randomized controlled trial. So we're lacking enormous, vast swaths of evidence that we really need. We've made some progress in uh, improving the quality of clinical data that is paid for by the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, we have something called uh, a clinical trials registry. So it's a little bit dif more difficult to sort of bury the negative trials. 
Um, they're now supposed to be saying what the, the end point of the trial is before the trial starts so that they can't switch endpoints midstream. And these are important steps, but it's really kind of crazy when you think about it to let industry pay for clinical trials. Clinical trials are a public good. They are for the good of all patients. And they should be paid for, I believe, by the federal government. And the full video is available on the BMJ's multimedia page or on our YouTube site, that's BMJ Media. Now, a feature on BMJ.com shows how trainee paediatric cardiac surgeons from London's Great Ormond Street Hospital are now travelling to India to allow them to find enough patients to gain enough experience of treating rare conditions. The BMJ's new editorial registrar, that's a junior doctor who's taken a year out of training to come and work at the journal, is Reg Bumbra, and he's also a surgical trainee who's done something very similar to those at Great Ormond Street. Earlier this week, I caught up with him to ask him about his time there. Like the surgeons that were mentioned in that feature, um, you've gone and done some time working in India as well. Why did you decide to do that? I think, broadly speaking, there's two ways to look at it. The first is that it's very important to work abroad in a different system. And I think the reason for that is that you get enhancement from going to see, A, another environment and how they look at solving similar problems but in a completely different way mm. and then b in terms of india why india was good is that it's the sheer volume of um the number of pa- uh, patients that you see the actual population of india is 1.2 billion mm. and mumbai is 20.4 million mm. so if you think i mean london is what nine million yeah. and where uh, i worked elsewhere in toronto and that was 2.5 million so suddenly you've got a city that's got 10 times more people in one hospital mm. so suddenly the numbers of patients that you're seeing and education is repetition ultimately so seeing that many patients completely changes exactly how you perceive a problem because you see more and more of it more and more heterogeneous um different presentations and you get so much more from it because you understand suddenly that uh, there is lots of different ways to skin the cat and also in the future in terms of the people that you work with there's nothing quite working with someone to get to know someone and if you are um, looking if we are looking at the ascendancy of globalization truly then uh, working in an interactive way with other units uh, such that we can then produce joint papers joint um, research um, that have a lot more gravitas in the world of um, research and, and beyond, then working internationally in collaborative efforts is the future. In the future, they were paediatric surgical trainees. You're uh, orthopaedic surgical trainees. Yeah, so in, in the sense that they the feature uh, discussed um, the fact that this was quite a unique um, niche special uh, speciality in um, paediatric cardiac uh, surgery. Um, I am in a similar niche speciality. Orthopaedic oncology deals with um, adult and paediatric soft and bone tissue tumours, uh, so-called sarcomas. And uh, thankfully, those are very rare tumours. There are only um, five centres in the UK that deal with them. And to that end, if you do want broader experience, um, going uh, further afield is, is, is mandatory, really. So, yes, it does lend itself... Um, in, when one works in a niche specialty, to have to go to high volume units to increase your experiences. Now, um, the examples that they've talked about in the um, feature, again, are those kind of 
high throughput hospitals that are are almost sort of industrialised in the way that they go about surgery. Was your experience then similar to that in a sort of different paradigm of, of how surgery is done? I think it's a necessity in the sense that it's it's not a factory processing system in the sense that you are uh, mindlessly going through the same thing each time uh, repetitively. It's the opposite in the sense that everything's different, but the way in which you go through that system is different. For example, a patient will come in, for, in, in a clinic, for example, a patient will come in mm-hmm. and suddenly you're in a position where you know you've got X number of patients behind you and it, the important thing is, is is the attention that you give to that patient at any one time, but you are also thinking about a corridor full of patients behind that patient. So that isn't really factory processing. It's the fact that they've got so many patients to get through. It's a necessity. And culturally, it's a lot more, um, uh, we would consider it, I guess, uh, abrupt. But for those guys, it was how it is. And they would just get through it. How did you go about setting it up? Uh, the key to setting up these kind of um, trips are relationships. And I had met the people who work there at whilst working at the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital in Stanmore and at um, Mount Sinai and Sick Kids in Canada, ironically at both places. And they said, look, Reg, you've got to come over if you can come over. And I didn't think I'd actually get a chance to go. But um, and then I contacted them. They said, this is what you need to do. And then guided me down the right path of the application process. Um, but then obviously it takes organisation Obtaining an Indian visa does take some effort in the sense that you um, are presented with quite a lot of bureaucracy, but you just have to go through the process. And if you're organised and are not in a rush, then you jump through the hoops. So there you've mentioned be patient um, to to get the through the visa system and so on. Um, any other tips? I think talk to someone who's done it is always helpful. That uh, catalyzes um, the process rather than having to go th- um, through it yourself. Um, th- talking to the hosts is really important. You can get a very good feeling about whether or not they're geared up and set up for, zi- for visitors. Um, I think uh, the fact that there's a lot of information online, there's a lot of information um, that uh, is out there, but it's a- about getting that information. And it takes, uh, a- as I said, organisation, patience and time to do those things. But it is worth it. I mean, you do you do forget the pain of going through it. You know, a bit like childbirth. You've, you know, that you enjoy the joy of having the work uh, under your belt when you're out there and coming back, how it affects your uh, future. I mean, we're all a product of our uh, training and experiences. And we remember the benefits of the training and experiences having gone out there rather than the, the pain and anguish it took standing in a queue to, with, a, with a chit that enables you to apply for a, a visa. So I, I wouldn't let the process discourage you of, um, of going out of um, getting your application and uh, getting the visas, it's important to look at the end game, really. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be back hearing how doctors should be diagnosing patient preference as well as maladies. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.